in an internet rabbit hole based on uh, the television interests of my childhood, and it was all related to preparing for the sermon. Uh, none of it had to do with the shocking fact that uh, beloved Aunt Becky, of Full House fame, uh, played by the great Lori Lachlan, was caught up in that um, ridiculous uh, college admissions fraud scandal. No, 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 I was wading in much deeper and murkier and darker and more obscure parts of uh, my, my, my childhood television consumption. And so as I was prepping for my sermon, my mind went for some bizarre reason to a show that aired for only one season in 1998, or I'm sorry, not 1998, 1988 and 89. Only 26 episodes ever aired on the Nickelodeon network. But it formed my understanding of justice in ways that are difficult to overstate. I'm talking, of course, about the show Kids Court, the only show where kids rule. I don't know if this is ringing any bells for anyone else, but uh, 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 this was a really, really important show for me. It was hosted by the inimitable Paul Provenza, and so Kids Court was Nickelodeon's attempt to translate uh, a courtroom show like a People's Court, Judge Wapner, to a young audience. And so the premise was that kids would write in with some scenario that seemed like a miscarriage of justice, and then they'd have people act out the roles of plaintiff and defendants, and at the end, the audience that was made up entirely of children would act as uh, the judge and jury, and they would clap for who they thought had made their case. Uh, And the winner of the case would be determined according to the judge-a-meter, which was this decibel reader that had a, was dressed up like an English judge, so it had the wig and the robe and everything, and and whoever applauded, whichever side got the loudest applause would win. And it's embarrassing to say how deeply I went down this rabbit hole, but I watched both versions of the pilot of Kids Court, um, which ended up not being actually hosted by the same person and having a totally uh, somewhat different format. And so I watched both versions of the pilot, and and, and then I also watched uh, a season or a regular episode of the show that I found online. And so it handled, you know, really serious cases, like, I loaned my friend my speakers, and then they broke. Should he buy me new speakers? And my teacher said my skirt was too short, according to the dress code, and she made me put biker shorts on underneath it, so should I have changed? And should we change the dress code? And I played Juliet in the school play, and then the school newspaper gave me a bad review, but that was just because I broke up with the guy who was writing the review. So should he have recused himself before writing the review? These are serious cases that raise deep questions about justice for kids. But the most influential part of the show for me, the best part of the show for me came uh, as a half-hour show, came in the last three to four minutes, in the closing credits, after the case was decided. And during that time, Paul Provenza would invite the kids in the jury slash audience to sound off. And by this he meant that they could share their own injustices that they had experienced And after which, after the kids shared it, he would say, fair or unfair? And the kids in the audience would invariably bellow out, unfair. Here are some of my favorite examples of the miscarriages of justice suffered by these children. My dad makes me clean up my room. Fair or unfair? Unfair. My mom embarrasses me by showing my friends my baby pictures. Fair or unfair? Unfair. My parents make me stop playing video games until I make my bed. Fair or unfair? Unfair. I can't chew bubble gum because I have braces. Fair or unfair? 
Unfair. And this one I'm sympathetic with. Uh, the, the, the TV networks interrupt my favorite shows because the president is giving a speech. <laughs> Fair or unfair? That's right. And I could not help uh, but think of this show as I was reading this parable, especially in looking at the reaction of those first hour workers to getting paid the same as those who worked only one hour. They could have taken the vineyard owner to kids' court and said, fair or unfair. And if we're being honest, I think we'd admit that we would yell out, unfair. And so I want to look at this passage really through the eyes of, of, of the three different characters that I see in it. They're the first hour workers, the people who got hired at the beginning of the day, and the eleventh hour workers who got hired at the end. And then there's the owner of the vineyard. And, and I want us to try to see this story through their eyes and, and to, to see also what Jesus is trying to teach us through this parable. Now first, just some context. In this parable, Jesus is using a scene that would have been familiar to people who had, you know, encountered the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and it was also familiar to them from their daily lives. And so, in Scripture, the images of a vineyard owner and workers, they were, were stock characters that stood in for God and for Israel and for God's people. And so, when Jesus told this story to a Jewish audience, they knew they weren't just hearing some, you know, general folktale, but they were hearing something about God, God's kingdom, and how God works in the world. But this situation was also one that they knew very well from, from everyday life and experience. Most people worked in agriculture, and the grape harvest was an in, in intense period. It took place over a short uh, period of time, and you needed lots and lots of workers to bring it in. And so if you were a large landowner and you had a vineyard, you'd, you'd hire day laborers to help you collect the harvest. And the place where you'd go to find these workers would be the marketplace in the morning where you'd pick up as many as you could or you needed, and you'd agree upon a wage. And a denarius, a coin, was considered a good wage for a single day's work. And though none of us in this room have probably ever experienced finding work this way, it's, these kind of employment arrangements are still common all over the world and, and even in our own country, especially in kind of, you know, the underground economy. Uh, when Amy and I were living in Ojai, California, this is a small town, mind you. I mean, this is less than 2,000 people. Live in Ojai, there was a bus stop downtown where Hispanic men would gather early in the morning waiting to be picked up for a day's work, most of them going to work in construction or landscaping. And it still exists even in more formal arrangements. If you've ever been hired by a temp agency, you know, these assignments can last for varying amounts of time, including one day. And so instead of, you know, going and waiting in the marketplace for someone to pick you up, you're waiting by your phone for a call or your computer for an email. And so the whole setting of this parable was relatable to your average person. It fit within their experience of life and their religious imagination. But we can't neglect the reason that Jesus told this parable in the first place, he told it to illustrate this point, that in the kingdom of heaven, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's what Jesus says at the end of chapter 19, verse 30, the, the, the very first verse of our reading. And Jesus says this, uh, it all comes after uh, this encounter with the rich young ruler who says, you know, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And 
Jesus says, well, what does Scripture say? And then the man answers it. He says, well, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And then the rich young ruler we know goes away sad because he had many things and he couldn't answer that call. And then Jesus teaches about how it's basically impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And then the, the, the disciples ask this question, well, if they can't be saved and he can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus replies, with, this, with uh, man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And after hearing that about the connection between being a follower of Jesus and poverty, Peter asks, he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. You know, what's in it for us? When, when does the payoff come? And Jesus says, in the coming kingdom, whatever you've given up, you will get back 100-fold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. In other words, Jesus is talking about this great reversal that is coming. And this seems to me to be both, it's a promise and a warning. It's a promise about what's to be gained by following Jesus, but it's a warning about doing so for the wrong reasons. And if you do that, you will find yourself among the first who are last, rather than the lasts who are firsts. I mean, that's, that's the phrase that's the heart of it all. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So sound off, fair or unfair. Jesus says, it's fair, and this parable is his way of explaining the why and the how of, of its fairness, and, and as with many things in the kingdom of heaven, it's a matter of perspective. If you're one of the workers who was hired earlier in the day, the first hour workers, you're going to hear this, you're going to shout, unfair. The first should be first. The last should be last. Now look at their relationship, though, to the owner of the vineyard. Jesus begins the parable saying, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. So there's a negotiation that's happening. A, a wage is agreed upon. And so this relationship is employer and employee. It's, it's contractual. It's legal. It's I do this and the vineyard owner, vineyard owner pays me. It's quid pro quo. And this is always, this is always, always, always the temptation for religious people. That our religious performance, our, our worship, our, our acts of mercy is not part of some heart relationship with God, but it, it's, it's more of a business thing. It's contractual, not covenantal. It's form without feeling. It's honoring God with our lips while well, our hearts are far from Him. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, I, I'm all up for form. But at some point, our hearts have got to be in this thing for the right reason. We've got to not just know Jesus, not just, you know, follow Jesus, but we've got to love him too. And in order to love him, we have to truly understand what he's done for us. Jesus begins the, the beatitude saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, but the worker who worked all day for the wage is one who is akin to being more middle class in spirit. You know, doing the God thing because it's the thing to do. And, and still, for some folks in our culture, it's part of being a, a, a fine, upstanding, respectable American citizen. 
Church is this nice social club we can belong to where we do good things with people who are pretty much like us. We get a payoff. God gives us a good, stable, middle-class life. It's wholesome. It's good for our families, good for our marriages, you know, helpful when we get sick or we get old. And in exchange, we just have to give God a few things, our attendance, our offerings, even maybe some time, you know, doing some good stuff. But the one thing that we don't give God is our hearts. We're like the workers who worked all day. We take God for granted. Now, I took the, for granted that the owner of the vineyard called them specifically first thing in the morning. They didn't think about or, or see the people who did not get that call at that time. They paid them no second thought. Why is that? It seems to me that they were under the impression that they deserved that call at that time. That they were worthy. That, that the call itself was one of merit rather than a free grace. Those who worked all day are, are like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Which, uh, if you had life group this week, that's the, the text we were just studying. Instead of rejoicing over everyone finally being given a call, a task to do, a reward, they, they, they resented that they hadn't been given more. And at the end of the parable, we see that they suffer from that great spiritual sickness that always manifests itself. Whenever someone is spiritually sick, it's going to manifest itself in these two symptoms, entitlement and resentment. Entitlement and resentment is, is the, the, the sign of a sin-sick soul. Entitlement that, that God or the world or the universe, it owes us something. And resentment, not just, you know, at what we don't have, but what other people do have. That's how firsts become last, by taking the call of God for granted and, and thus becoming entitled and, and resentful. And the only cure is to understand grace. Because when we do entitlement and resentment, they give way to generosity and gratitude. That's how lasts become firsts. Which leads to the second group of workers, the 11th hour workers, those who did very little work and yet received the same amount as those who worked all day. You know, if you're one of those workers and this happens, you get a denarius and you only worked an hour, sound off. Is this fair or unfair? That's a good question. And they weren't idlers. They hadn't been slacking off all day. The owner asked them at the 11th hour, well, why are you still here? Why aren't you working? What happened? And their answer is so, so telling. They say, well, because no one's hired us. They had been standing around all day willing to work. They were just waiting for a call, waiting to be chosen. They know what it's like to be left out. They know what it's like to be overlooked. They know what it's like to be, you know, not amongst the first picked. That's why the last become first in the kingdom. Because of their experience and their situation, they truly understand that grace is grace. What they received from the owner is received not as something they're owed or they've earned or they're entitled to. It's sheer gift. And they saw something else too. 
They saw how many times this vineyard owner went out to seek for more people. The have-nots they saw were not just pursued, but relentlessly so. Unless we think, you know, okay, well, hold on now. There is a difference between the early workers and the late ones. The late ones did get grace, absolutely, 100%. They did get a gift. But the early workers were right. They earned what they got. They did the work. They did it all day in the hot sun. And they shouldn't be happy with what they got. They are right not to just expect more, but demand more. Now, keep in mind, this is a parable, not an economics lesson. And the wages that Jesus is talking about are are an illustration of what he said to his disciples at the end of chapter 19, when he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and, he says, will inherit eternal life. So what is a daily wage in the kingdom? The daily wage for all who labor in God's vineyard is simply this, eternal life, all the treasure of God. And so when the gift is of infinite worth and eternal value, when the gift is literally everything, how can one ever receive more than the other. And what has God in Christ given us in the power of the Spirit? Everything. Can you add to everything? Can you distribute everything in differing degrees or quantities? No. You know, fair or unfair? Unfair. But that's the point. The good news of the kingdom, the gospel, isn't about us getting what we deserve. It's about us not getting what we do deserve and getting what we don't. And when we understand that, we understand the the, the fairness, the, the justice of God's mercy. And in their grumbling, we see what the great preacher Tom Long calls the true poverty of the first hour workers. Everybody in this parable, he says, is tendered with the wealth of the kingdom. The deep river of providence flows through everybody's life. God gives everyone a daily wage so extravagant that no one could spend it all. A deluge of grace descends upon all. Torrents of joy and blessing fall everywhere. And there these first hour workers stand, drenched in God's mercy, an ocean of peace running down their faces, clutching their little contracts and whining that they deserve more rain. See, the first hour workers, they were working for the denarius. But the eleventh hour workers, they were working for the vineyard owner. And therein lies all the difference between the first becoming last and the last becoming first. Now, speaking of that vineyard owner, Jesus, in this parable, invites us to see him as a symbol for God. And in these parables, the God figure, you know, we can't overread these things and say, well, the God's exactly like the vineyard owner, but he's like him in several wonderful ways. Now, first notice that what the vineyard owner is focused on. It's the workers and not the harvest. The work to be done gets, gets barely a mention, but there's an unrelenting focus on the workers. God cares about us, and he seeks us with a doggedness that we see as the vineyard owner returns time and time again to the market. God is unwavering in his pursuit of us. 
You know, what would a normal employer say to workers waiting near the end of the day? I'm, I'm sorry, I wish there was something that I could do to help you come back tomorrow. But not our God. He keeps coming back. He keeps inviting people in as long as there is still daylight. And the vineyard owner doesn't merely see deservedness. He sees the greater need. You know, what would happen to the families of those workers who worked only five or three or one hour and they only received a fraction of the denarius as their wage? How would you feed your family with that? Pay your bills? What would you have to do? You know, sell yourself, your family into slavery? Decide who shares one scrap of bread? Now, the vineyard owner sees the world not through the eyes of desert, but the eyes of mercy. He understands there's a deeper justice at work than meets the eye. He understands that what's right and what's fair are not always the same thing. And lastly, to all who he has called, he gives the same thing. In the kingdom of God, there is no distinction. All are equally and infinitely blessed. As Paul says, In Galatians, all are one in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus ends the parable, he highlights this truth, that grace belongs to God and not to us. And the only way we can ever receive it for what it truly is, grace, as grace, is as the least. The least, the lost, the last the 11th hour worker. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And on this, my favorite commentator, Dale Bruner, says, the extravagance of the parable ought to be respected. The text stops on the note of the incomprehensible grace of God. And so should we. So let's stop there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.